Hey, welcome back to the Consciousness Explorers podcast, the podcast that's all about exploring the mind and body using different practices. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff Warren, and with me is Tasha Schumann. Hey, guys. We're happy to have you along. So today we are talking to a fellow named John Prendergast, uh, a spiritual teacher. He wrote three books, at least. He wrote a book called The Deep Heart, a book called In Touch, and then how I first came across him years ago, he wrote a book called The Sacred Mirror, or he, or he was an editor on it, actually, which was this anthology of writings that bridge psychotherapy with non-duality. And that was really very much what we got into today. I, you know, find him to be just a really wicked dude. And he kind of puts me into this really interesting space. And I feel like this conversation that we had here really did that. Like I, what I loved about it is I ended up getting in touch with my heart. I know it sounds a bit cheesy, but it feels really good. <laughs> and he has a really nice take on this. And that was my takeaway. Well, what about you, Tasha? Yeah, totally. For me, it was that, you know, when you hear heart-centered meditation, it's a term that gets tossed around a lot. You kind of don't know what to expect or how, you know, soft and fuzzy it's going to be. This one was totally embodied. I found John totally brought me into that place. And I think we went we went deep in this one. So here's the conversation. John, welcome to the Consciousness Explorers Club podcast. Yeah, welcome. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I am very curious about this practice you're going to lead us in. And maybe by way of setting it up, just saying a little bit about who you are, uh, your approach to, I guess, practice to these larger questions and what you're going to guide us in. Okay. Well, the the question of who I am <laughs> is interesting if we don't take it in a superficial way. In other words, you know, I can give a biography and, and I will, but I just want to accent um, just what a living question it is to not mm. take for granted who we think we are to be able to actually step back from our personal narrative and feel ourselves undefined and as a consequence, mm. unconfined to any story. So, you know, the truth is, I don't know who I am. And I'm quite happy <laughs> to, to rest in that knowing and, and the discovery of that. Now I'll give a conventional <laughs> response, which is, um, what is my conventional response? Well, um, you know, for many years, I've worked as a psychotherapist, four decades. Uh, I'm a retired adjunct professor of psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies, where I supervise and train psychotherapists on a graduate level for 23 years. Uh, I've been interested in the spiritual quest since my late teens. And as actually as a boy, as a preteen, I had a number of kind of confusing, pleasant, but confusing experiences of opening to a vast space, uh, often when I would fall asleep. And, uh, and then when I began a meditation practice, uh, at that point, it was a mantra meditation when I was 20. I began to re-experience that. So really for 50 years, this has been my great love to um, deepen into uh, one's true nature. And that's taken many forms. Part of it is to become a psychotherapist, to kind of deal with my own conditioning and help others do that. But along that way, I've also studied with some wonderful teachers, including the European <clears throat> Advaita master, Jean Klein and Adyashanti. And I've been co-teaching uh, retreats beginning 12 years ago and then teaching on my own for the last five years doing retreats and online events. So that's a little bit about who I am. And how I approach practice is um, with love and tenderly. 
In other words, I used to a- approach it as a discipline, which has its has its value, certainly kind of kept me in line for doing it regularly for 10 years. But I began to see that meditation was not just on the cushion and not just a particular practice, but really was living moment to moment. And that can sometimes be a cliche for abandoning uh, a sitting practice, which I've not done, but it expanded it. And and my whole understanding of you know practice and living and inquiry have all blended together. So I approach practice as really something that I love and something that really inspires and uh, as a way to deeply attune, to deeply listen to who we really are and to inquire. So it has two aspects. One is just resting in and as awareness, which is a familiar practice in many contemplative traditions. But it also involves meditative inquiry, which is to the art of sitting with an essential question. And that question can be, you know, the ones from, we know from Ramana Maharshi, uh, such as, who am I? Or who or what am I really? Or say from Korean Zen, what is this? Or variations, existential questions, like what is my true ground? Or what is, what is the deepest nature of the heart? But I also use inquiry to work with psychological material, and particularly with core limiting beliefs. And this is something that's probably, I don't know if it's unique, but it's uncommon and reflects my interest in both domains that really aren't separate, that of the psychological and the spiritual, where we learn to recognize these often subconscious beliefs that really are running our lives and accessing heartfelt presence and then inquiring into what our deepest knowing is. So that will be the practice that I'll be um, guiding you through and, and that we'll be talking about today. Wow. Awesome. Thank you. Is there anything that you, uh, that listeners should kind of keep in mind before we get going with it? Any advice or just park the expectations and see what happens? Ah, I like that one. (laughs) I like, I like parking expectations. It's, there's a couple of things maybe. I mean, one is the most important thing when we're working with meditative inquiry is our desire to know what's true. Like, do we really want to know? what's true. And that's, that's on whatever level, a relative or an absolute level. So as we, as we enter into this experiential investigation, that's often the very first question to sit with. Do I really want to know what's true? Do I really want to know what I know? And sometimes we don't. We're actually very ambivalent. Uh, we're quite good at denial and staying in our comfort zones. And so if we're really dedicated to knowing what's true, we're opening up the field tremendously to a whole different way of knowing and of being. So, you know, to, to you and to your listeners, I would say sit, you know, sit quietly with that question first. Do I really want to know uh, before we begin this inquiry? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'll let you take it from here. Okay. Good. I really want to know for the, for the record. I do. <laughs> For the record, she does. <laughs> Let it be known. I really do want to know. I Look, don't want to know. <laughs> I, I like I like all the voices here <laughs> because they're they're honest. I mean, they're honest. This is about being authentic, isn't it? Yeah. And if we don't want to know, not to judge that, to be curious about that, because that's also a portal into mm. knowing. Like part of us actually doesn't want to know. Yeah. Part of us is afraid of the unknown. Uh, or we want to we want to confirm what we what we think we know. That's right. We want to confirm, 
And so we're, we're opening into the unknown. Um, the language is a little, uh, sounds contradictory, but it's not when we're willing to know deeply and in a different way. So good, good to be in touch with any ambivalence that may be there because that's authentic. Hmm. So let me give you overall of this overall um, kind of description of this approach, and then we'll do it. The first step is to, in terms of getting in touch with a core limiting belief is to be able to recognize it. And there are different ways of doing that. One is to notice a chronic sense of contraction in the body, a somatic contraction that you tend to have, a way that you tighten up. Uh, often it's in the torso somewhere. It can be in the heart area or the solar plexus or the lower belly, throat. It can really be anywhere uh, in the body. That's often a kind of key signal of some kind of core limiting belief that's at work. So that's one way. We can do a body scan or be aware of where we tend to tighten up. And another very similar way is when we have an emotional reaction, when we get triggered in a fairly consistent way. That's also a signal of a core limiting belief. And we can also just ask ourselves, you know, what are my kind of key core limiting beliefs? What's my, what are my top 10 or top five hits, if you speak of that way? And kind of let it come to you. So often, in my experience, most beliefs constellate around two poles. One is a sense of lack, that I'm not enough. And the other is a sense of flaw, that something's wrong with me. And often they work in tandem. You know, I'm, I'm lacking something essential, important. Um, and also something, the way I am, something's really wrong with it. I'm stained, I'm flawed, I'm really screwed up. And very often, the core limiting beliefs can be expressed very simply as a child would say them. That is to say in you know, five words, like, I'm really screwed up, or something's wrong, terribly wrong with me, or I'm missing something, I'm not enough. So I invite everyone to take a minute and just check inside. And sense and feel what may be true for you in terms of a core limiting belief. And often you'll know you're you're getting to one because there'll be um, a kind of charge to it. It'll be a reaction or a somatic contraction that accompanies it. This is a very important step because we see the connection between uh, subconscious beliefs and emotions and somatic contractions or reactions. It can take a little while to kind of feel into it. And it can also evolve as we do the inquiry. So don't worry about getting exactly right. Usually when I'm working with people one-on-one, -on -one, we'll have a little bit of a dialogue around this to help refine and attune. So I'm going to have to trust you, <laughs> you guys and all of your listeners, to find one that feels charged for you. 
and then let it go. Just put it aside. And the next step, I realize I'm just going to guide you through this as we do it, is bring your attention to the heart area. That means the center of the chest. So let your attention, if it hasn't already, drop down and in to the heart area. And imagine that you can breathe directly into and out from the center. Just sensing and feeling. And as you do this, what's happening is you're actually entering into a conscious dialogue with your heart wisdom. That is to say, a deeper, quieter, more direct and intuitive way of knowing. It's not analytic. It's not judgmental. And it's not binary. It doesn't answer in simple yeses or noes. Often it can take a minute here to just you know, warm this area up with your attention. Sometimes we can feel a quietness or a warmth or some quality of depth as we attune. Okay, good. And then we ask the question, what is my deepest knowing about this belief? Whatever your core limiting belief was, and you can repeat it to yourself. What is my deepest knowing about this? It's very important that you don't go to your mind for an answer. Usually when we pose a question, we try to think about it. But we're not trying to think about it. We pose the question and we let it go. And we wait without grasping. And we're not even looking for an answer. We're just open to a response, which could come as a felt sense, some whole body sense. You may feel it as a shift, an opening, a melting. It may come as an image. And it can come as words as well, or all of those. What is my deepest knowing about this belief? Or alternatively, what's the truth now? We let it go. And we just wait innocently, openly. It's important not to dismiss whatever arises. Often the mind will dismiss what comes. No need to do that. And often within a minute, sometimes less, sometimes immediately, there'll be some kind of response, sometimes quite unexpected, quite surprising. What is my deepest knowing about this belief? 
What's the truth now? Feel and sense. Notice what happens. And then let it in. This is a very important step. This is a step of transformation, not just of insight, not just of discovery. Because you're letting in the light of awareness into the conditioned body-mind. You're allowing the subconscious mind and the body to open to a much deeper and truer dimension of your being. So you let it in, you breathe it in. You let your whole body be saturated and participate in whatever comes. And as you do, just notice what happens. Let yourself know what you know. Let in the light of awareness in whatever form, heart wisdom. This is a sacred listening. And then if you haven't already, open your eyes. And when an opportunity comes, I invite you to act from this deeper knowing. This is sort of the final step. There's the inner receiving, and then there's the outer action so that it begins to move in your ordinary life. What would it be like to act from this more free and open way of knowing and being? How would it affect your relationships, your intimate relationships, your work, and your relationship to life? Okay, that's it. Thank you. That was awesome. Yeah, I'd love to hear what came up for you guys. Jeff, you want to hit it first? <laughs> that was powerful. That was powerful for me. Um, okay. <laughs> Let me just put myself back together here. Loosely, I hope. <laughs> Loosely. 
lightly recombobulate. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So okay. So the initial question about a core limiting belief. So I kind of drop that in. Of course, the mind right away want it, wants to jump in with its ideas, but I try to just sort of drop it in and just pretend I didn't know what was going to come up. Uh-huh. And what came up was something very familiar to me. Um, uh, things are not okay. It's uh-huh. like, I got, I got to get things sec- figured out. I got to secure things. It's the speedy ADD hypervigilant part of me. And I sort of thought, okay, so I know this. And I kind of felt into it and I could feel it as a kind of raciness in the upper chest and maybe a kind of spinning in the frontal lobes, kind of, you know, trying to like strategize my way out of whatever latest conundrum I'm in. So I, I sat with that. And then um, your invitation to connect to this basic deeper knowing oh yeah connecting to the heart so i i did that and i have some questions about that because i'm always I'm, at first i was like oh am i connected or not connected or am i just feeling the breathing into this but when i just relaxed as per your excellent guidance and just trusted it and was patient you know all my cognitive critiques of this idea kind of dropped away and what i noticed was a very simple simple feeling in the heart like this very quiet simple feeling and as soon as i noticed it it started to spread out yeah almost like a kind of warmth it was really nice and then very surprisingly a wave of very strong emotion of kind of gratitude poignancy want to cry feeling Mm. and i realized oh underneath that things are not okay is some kind of thing around i'm not okay and it was like the heart it was just this love it was love and i'm like oh gosh this is happening (laughs) i'm gonna talk about it oh man that's okay i'm gonna whatever and i just sat in it and it was things were very quiet then and just still so quiet that i remember thinking i have to remember to ask john how does one know to stay here because it's so subtle it's so you could just slip right off of it and i did slip off it i got into thinking about whatever the podcast, you know, or other things. And I, it's like, it's this sort of easy window that's always here, but that's so subtle. You just slide right over it. Indeed. And then especially that last step of, okay, now can you trust it enough to just know this is real, which is a huge thing. It seems like, and then act, what, how would you act from this place? And that was very, you know, it was very rich inquiry for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is uh, this is authentic. This is you tapped in. It's beautiful. Yeah, for me, it was like, I mean, similar at the beginning. I think for a lot of us, that feeling is like, you know, I'm not okay, or something's not okay. The words that kind of formed around it for me was, it has to be perfect. So it's like this mm-hmm. feeling of, you know, it not being okay, but I can make it okay. <laughs> I can fix it if I can just tweak hard enough, or batten down the hatches, or plan more or whatever that kind of feeling of gathering and fixing and I felt like as soon as I accessed that it was really really difficult to move into the heart and heart-centered practice is actually something I do quite often but when I pushed that button you know that like that core limiting kind of button then it was like no don't go down there stay in the head the head is where we can fix things from Uh so kind of like melting down into it Uh and my experience of you know, coming down 
consciously to the heart center was that my experience of my heart center was almost too bright. It was like so alive and so br- like a gigantic, you know, like the kind of like the, the energy that a child has. It's just like, ah, we can run all over the place and play <laughs> and do all sorts of stuff. And I, for me, encountering that, I was like, oh, that's what that's about. It's like at my core, I'm just like this rambunctious kid with so much joy and I want to play and nothing's wrong. But then there's this like, okay, we got to harness that. We got to make it perfect. We got to fit it together for the adult world. We got to make it all happen. So there was just this, I, I found myself almost like bouncing off of the heart centering. Like it was almost too much to stay in Ooh. just like nakedly. So I was like, dip my toe in and be like, okay. And, you know, as you, your guidance was to kind of stay with it and have the truth of it kind of reveal itself to us rather than trying to think through it and put words to it. And the feeling that arose to me as I, you know, slowly settled down into it was that I was afraid of it, that I I have a, a core kind of fear of that power, that raw power. Like, what if I just let it do what it wants to do? You yes. know, there's like a fear of that. And sitting in that, and when you said, you know, when you, if you took this out into your life, what would it be like to act from that? And there's like the simultaneous excitement and fear. And I realized at, that every cool thing that I've ever done, you know, if I'm like performing on stage in front of like a ton of people or I don't know, making music and putting out crazy songs or whatever, every cool thing that I've done was from that place. Uh-huh. And every, you know, overcalculated thing was from that other place of yes. planning and messing with it so there's a there's a related belief here tasha that it's not safe mm-hmm. to fully shine to bring yeah. this out and all the exuberant joy you know yeah. that's here and so that's another you know that's another inquiry like is it safe to be so open-hearted so joyful yeah so loving in this world right yeah and i, I feel like a lot of people have that feeling and then it's sure the world kind of like, you know, slaps you on the nose like your little puppy. And <laughs> it's like, at, be- at best, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. I was just thinking about what you were saying. And it's so interesting, this process, you know, I guess what I was wondering about is if we think that you mentioned at the beginning, some of the core limiting beliefs, like how do those sort of constellate? And do you ever get rid of your core limiting beliefs or is it more like you learn how to like see them with affection and they're just become less influential or can you really expunge those fuckers <laughs> <laughs> wait a second maybe i'm using the wrong language well um actually if you go in with that attitude uh, you're in for a fight right mm-hmm. yeah and so that that's the interesting thing about this inquiry is we're interested in what's true we're not interested in getting rid of anything so you know, in a way, it's kind of classic vipassana. You know, it's about seeing and seeing through. You know, it's and that's that's the process. It's like the more clearly that we see something is untrue, the less power it has. And mm-hmm. gradually, yeah. my experience is these just fall away because these are imprints largely from childhood, Tasha, as you were kind of, mm-hmm. you know, suggesting. We kind of get, you know, bopped on the nose if we're too exuberant or too honest and we learn you know, as a way of adapting not to do that. And then we bury our kind of intrinsic aliveness and authenticity and, and our deeper knowing. Um, and so, they're patterns that at some point served us, like they kept us alive. They yeah, they were very, they were, as we know, they're very yeah. adaptive, right? 
and now they're maladaptive. And so by just with this kind of curiosity and affection and a willingness to know the truth, uh, and by seeing and seeing through, they tend to fall away. Um, do they sometimes fall away completely? Yes. Um, do they tend to diminish? Absolutely. And that's been my experience with people that I've worked with. They both, you know, they at, at first there's a, a diminishing of frequency and intensity, and and there's also a, a change and therefore a change in relationship to them. We just don't buy them. You know, they become mm. more conscious. We're not as hooked. And of course, it's our belief in them that gives them fuel. So the less we believe, uh, the the less powerful they become. And often they just kind of fall away or become peripheral. Like occasionally, I still get triggered occasionally. And I, I'm curious, oh, what's that? You know, and then it's like, oh, yeah, all right, there you are. <laughs> I guess, because this is why this is so valuable, because so much of our suffering and our maybe maladaptive behaviors, there's sort of these secondary responses that emerge out of these core limiting beliefs. I mean, they maybe speak to a moment for that, like why this is so important to explore into. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the description of core and limiting, core limiting beliefs is very intentional. They're core because we hold them very deeply. Um, we identify with them and they um, they really radiate out in all areas of our, our life and relationships and work. And as I was suggesting, our whole relationship to life itself, often as a kind of unseen driver. And they constrict us. They limit us. They, they limit, like Tasha, in your case, this kind of exuberant joy. Or Jeff, they may drive you, you know, to mm -hmm. be more frenetic than you need to be. You can be more peaceful and still get, you know, things done. In fact, things are done more peacefully and often more efficiently. But we feel more at ease in our relationship. We feel more at ease in ourself. Um, and we feel more at ease with life, regardless of what's going on. So there's a kind of tyranny of these beliefs that we're unaware of and that are kind of like, you know, a kid who's got the driving wheel. And <laughs> as we begin to see them, you know, that grip loosens and lightens up. And what happens is we, we're just much more adult, more conscious. So that's just on a personal level. But there's also a, a level, a spiritual level as well, which is as we clear these deep imprints of conditioning, and, and as I suggested, the beliefs are very intimately related with somatic contractions and emotional reactions. As all of that begins to harmonize, I would say, and integrate, we're much more available to our true nature, to this uh, spacious loving awareness mm -hmm. that is inherent in each of us. And so there's just a lot less noise in the system. And we can attune with that signal and trust it. So in my case, for instance, I, I, I would get the signal, but I didn't trust it. Yeah. Uh, my mind, my critical mind would come in and say, is that real? Are you just fooling yourself? You know, do you just want to make yourself feel better? And so the mind was just tyrannical that way until I began to see, you know, that this doubting was just another thought and I could disidentify from that. And that really shifted things because I could begin to trust you know, Jeff, you were tapping into this and noticing a little struggle is like, can I, is this real? You know, can I really trust this? And, and that's a very important shift that happens as well as we free ourselves from these core limiting beliefs. Yeah, it's so interesting because it is so subtle and the mind is so loud. And it's not only that it's subtle, it's also, how do I say this? 
it sounds like an ideal. It sounds sort of sentimental or it sounds like almost too good to be true-ish. It has the kind of first, it smacks of that William James firstborn type, um, a kind of endless optimistic kind of youthful spiritual attitude that, you know, life kind of beats you out of, you know, and, and especially if you're kind of in that more secular mode, you got to have a hard bitten humanistic view on things and to begin to trust some subtle feeling in the heart seems like I can, you know, I can imagine half of my friends would just shut that down yeah. before it even began, which mm -hmm. is a tragedy. And so much of that, that has to do with language. Like, I think the same thing, you know, we call it the heart, but then also culturally, we just associate the heart with like soft and gooey and gushy and, uh -huh. you know, rom-coms and stuff like that, and sensuality, yeah. So it's almost like, you know, if you can get someone to tap into it without using any language at all, it might bypass that somehow, you know? Uh, yeah, and yet we, you know, we do use language. And so uh -huh. I think it's important to use language that's as naturalistic and uh -huh. authentic and attuned with people's experience. So I find, you know, this kind of language, heart wisdom, and just kind of sensing and being quiet and letting it come to you and, and, and trusting a felt sense and recognizing that there's a deeper wisdom. All of these, um, I, I find people relate to, um, relate to well. So, yeah, I mean, there is a kind of, um, there is doubt and there is cynicism. And it's not as if life you know, your life becomes a, you know, a bed of roses or whatever. But um, what does happen is we, we really tap into something that is so just open, clear, and inherently loving. It's like, it's like coming home. This is, a, this is a metaphor that people often spontaneously come to. It's a sense of coming home. But as children, we did not know this consciously. You know, we kind of lived from it, but not knowingly. Mm -hmm. And this is about coming home, leaving what we had to abandon, that kind of native innocence, and then coming back to it knowingly. And it's tempered. It's tempered with wisdom. It's tempered with experience. And here's another point I think that's really important. It actually enhances our capacity, our empathy for the suffering mm -hmm. of others. We're, we're more open. We're more vulnerable you know, to our own experience and our own suffering. But as that resolves, and even as it doesn't resolve, we open really to um, a greater suffering and a capacity to be with that as well. And I, I think this is what we want. You know, we want to come home. We want to be able to embrace our lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters uh, as openly and compassionately as possible. Hmm. And something about the idea of coming home too is like, I was just thinking, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's not a meditator and she's always trying to wrap her head around why are you doing this all the time, you know? Uh -huh. And, and I said, well, have you tried? Like if you sit there, you know, with it and she's like, can't you just tell me, can't you just tell me what I'm supposed to figure <laughs> out at the end? <laughs> and, and I'm, you know, trying to convey to her that that's the whole point is that there, it's not this external, you, we get so used to like finding the answers externally or having someone tell us the answer or finding uh -huh. it in a book or yeah. reading it in a science journal, you know, that there's a whole different kind of answer that you get from arriving at home in yourself. There's like yes. a different kind of information. It's a different knowing. Mm -hmm. And and I often, in my teaching, I often kind of point to this importance of discerning um, 
the ordinary strategic mind. And Jeff, I mean, both of you are referring to this, you know, tendency to problem solve and, and gain control in order to master certain events. And of course, we do that naturally as human beings. But this kind of over control and overthinking really creates a lot of suffering. It alien- we feel alienated from ourselves. We feel driven. We feel alienated. Uh, we feel cut off and split. And, and it's really unless and until we begin to slow down and listen and attune, yeah. we won't tap in to this uh, quieter, deeper level of knowing and, and kind of recognize the signal of it yeah. and, and attune with it. The problem is it, it has so much momentum and it yeah. has so much authority. Mm-hmm. And so you, how do you work with that momentum? I guess mm-hmm. that's why you need a capital P practice, some place where you're intentionally choosing to do things in a different way, choosing to get curious about subtleties that you overlook in the everyday, choosing to honor things that feel quite vague and unsure, but then to make a practice of it, to practice saying, pretending even, okay, I'm just going to pretend that this is real, that there is this softness here, or there is this, or this voice that's saying, hey, slow down is something to listen to. You know, it's almost like some way of beginning to turn that momentum around. Uh-huh. Well, certainly you're, you're right that, you know, experience is really what is transformative and what gets us to, to uh, begin to attune can be very different for people. The motivation, very often it's yeah. suffering, you know, very yeah. often our lives are not working. You know, we we find ourselves in conflict internally and interpersonally and, and we begin to question, you know, our way of approaching life. And we get interested in, in a different kind of way. I find that this is the primary motivation, mm-hmm. both, you know, in people who come into psychotherapy because they've tried what they've learned and it's not working very well. Or, and I think this is the minority, there are people who just feel there's, they're missing something, that there's greater depth to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they really want to, you know, find out what that is. That was my path, actually. I did, was not that of, you know, suffering, but more of a, a deep, kind of curiosity and spontaneous draw to that. And interestingly, whichever path, whichever fuels are driving us, some people are motivated and others are not. And it's important, you know, that that it be an authentic motivation. We won't we will never come to it as a should, at least not the deeper levels. You know, and, and here we can distinguish kind of different motives for beginning practices. You know, for me it was kind of a mixture when I began. I was interested in these deeper dimensions, but I also wanted to feel less anxious. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people start with that, you know, wanting to feel calmer, you know, sleep better, uh, be less depressed or anxious, and that's fine. But the dimensions that are available are so much deeper. The capacity for inner freedom is so much more than we realize. And, and once we get a taste of this, once we begin to get a feel for this, then then there's a, a virtual kind of cycle that develops of what I call a, a kind of dialogue between the conscious mind and this heart wisdom or, or deeper, deeper way of knowing and being. Yeah. And on the topic of motivation too, it's something that you mentioned when you were kind of talking about your background is that, you know, you came to this kind of quest in late adolescence, but can remember these moments from childhood 
of, you know, I think you said pleasant, but confusing, (laughs) you know, and I made a note to myself when you said that, because that's actually, you know, Jeff and I have been friends for a long time. And so much of our conversation is like sharing these like little quirky moments from throughout our lives that, you know, when we're like five years old, I remember just like finding a ray of sunshine in my house and no one was around and just laying in it, you know, in some kind of samadhi for how, I don't even know how long. And so that's, you know, basically the kind of the motivation behind this podcast is to remind people that we've all had these experiences all along the way, but we kind of, whether you pay attention to them or not is kind of your, you know, what motivates you or not. And also there's just like so much, I find the way that we talk about as a, as a society, the way that we talk about meditation is sold so much as like, it'll help you sleep better. It'll help you be more productive. Mm -hmm. And it's missing that extra element of, you know, like you can reconnect to this childlike magic or, you know, the wonder of the universe or whatever that is. Yeah, a sense of awe. That's right. A sense of profound peace, a sense of profound communion. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I'm interested in teasing apart two little things here, John. Uh, On the one hand, there's this idea that we can start to, tap into this subtle, more intuitive kind of heart-based knowing that can, t- that essentially tells us that we're loved or we're safe or, I mean, I'd be curious to hear the, the kinds, it seems like those are the kinds of things it tells us, mm-hmm. but it has an answer. But then there's this other piece, which you spoke at the, about at the very beginning, which is who am I? When you ask that question to yourself, and I've done this practice a lot, I also come to a similar answer that it seems that you've come to, which is, I don't actually know. Yes. I, there is this, I don't know. So there's a, there's on the one hand, there's, I have no idea. And on the other hand, there's, oh, there's an answer. Can you speak to that kind of, is there a tension between those two modes or are they one, no, two parts th- of the same thing? Yeah. Two parts of the same thing. And yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful question. Yeah. It's like the, the response of, I don't know is not a mistake. Like it's Mm -hmm. not a failure (laughs) of your inquiry. It's actually the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, In other words, the mind, the conscious mind has limits in terms of its capacity to understand who we fundamentally are. So if we're really honest in our inquiry about who or what am I really, um, we come to a don't know, an honest don't know. And that becomes a portal. Like here in the I don't know, we're in a place of innocence, a Mm. place of openness. And here we can rest. We rest Mm -hmm. in the the not knowing, in the don't know. And in resting in not knowing or don't know mind, whole dimensions begin to reveal themselves, you know, other than ordinary strategic mind. And that's the quietude. In the quiet, we wait. And in the waiting, there's a spontaneous discovery process that happens, an uncovering, a discovering of a whole other dimension of our being. And so in that sense, they're really it's a gateway. The not knowing, the don't know is a gateway to a different way of knowing, a spontaneous and direct way that's not just heartfelt. The heart is, I find, the reason I wrote the book, The Deep Heart, is because I, I think it's the most accessible portal to this. But there are several main portals and 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 life itself offers endless portals or opportunities gaps and and openings to discover what's here inherently in each of us all of the time 
So occasionally that will come into the foreground of awareness, as you were suggesting, Tasha, as these little glimpses that we have as children or adolescents or adults. And almost everyone has had them, moments of wonder and awe and openness. But it's not, um, these are not altered states. We actually come out of the altered state of the conditioned awareness, conditioned body-mind, and we're opening to something that's always here, quietly in the background of awareness. So this is, this is interesting, I think, in, in the, the resting and not knowing, in the, the who am I, what am I really, and coming to not knowing. And again and again, a whole other dimension of experience of knowing and being emerges. And I find this in my work with people on retreat and one-on-one mentoring. If we just sit together in that silence, not knowing, uh, a whole other level of discovery unfolds. Mm. As you were saying that, I, I just did a little quick experiment. I was like, what does it feel like if I add, if I say the, the statement, I don't know, from my head, uh-huh. like, from a centered from my head? And it, I felt really constricted and almost like panicky. Yeah. You know, panic, it feels scary to not know from your head. But then I thought, Let, what happens if I ask the same question from a, a heart-centered? Uh-huh. And it was actually very relaxing. <laughs> it's kind of, it feels nice that, not to That's so awesome. That's a great experiment. And it, it really it illustrates a very important point, which is um, we use our head-based knowing as an attempt to control. Mm-hmm. And we attempt to control in order to be safe. So here is the survival uh, mode, you know, in kind of clear clearly defined and explained. I mean, that kind of, I need to know so I can be in control so that I can be safe. This is such a deep program and it creates anxiety, therefore, just as you experienced in your little, you know, little experiment, Tasha, you know, it creates anxiety. Like, I don't know what's going on. Something bad will happen. Things will get out of control. But when the knowing is really from a deep place, you know, a deep, we can say from the heart, but it doesn't have to localize in the heart. I think this is the point I, I didn't fully clarify in my last remark, that it doesn't have to localize in the heart. It can localize in the gut. It can be non-localized. It can just feel like it comes out of nowhere, which in a way is true. Uh, it's not a local awareness. We can sense it through different portals, through the mind, through the heart, mm-hmm. as, mm-hmm. through the mind as a kind of clear, spacious freedom of awareness. And a lot of meditative traditions accent and emphasize that the heart as a deep, quiet, silent knowing of wholeness within ourself and unity between ourself and, and all beings, or even deeper in the gut. This can come as just kind of a dark, luminous silence full of possibility. You know, no words, no images, but a sense of profound ground or, or groundless ground. So we can, we can tap in through these different portals, and they'll have different flavors, but they, they all point in that same direction to a knowing that is to a not knowing <laughs> that is a portal that's extremely beneficent, nourishing, life-giving. And just a word about that. I, I know I'm going on a bit, but in this opening, you know, to not knowing, we actually open to a deeper ground and a deeper current of life. We begin to feel something universal moving through us, not in an inflated or grandiose way, not in a way that makes us feel special, but in a way that that allows us to feel deeply connected with the rhythm, the pulse of life. And, our, and, and we find ourselves aligning with that increasingly uh, in our relationships and in our work. And, and this is one of the delights of my work with people is to help you know, uncover, help them uncover and discover this. Wow, so beautiful. Well, I 
feel like I should ask the practical question, um, mm -hmm. which is just, I mean, a lot of what you're describing, it sounds so healing and, and wonderful. And who doesn't want to come into a relationship with the world where there's more peace and patience and openness and humility and love? How does, and, and yet we have all this momentum of our bad habits, if you want to call it. So mm -hmm. when you encounter people who are interested in this, how, what kind of program might you uh, offer in terms of a practice or a way to think about the practice that, to help, to help go there? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, there, we are complex beings, aren't we? And, and highly conditioned and unique in our conditioning. So there's no, you know, there's no one program for all beings and, you know, in my, my books, In Touch and The Deep Heart, I try to offer an assortment of pathways and practices. And I think what's important is to find a practice that's really uh, resonant for you, something that feels real, something that you really love. And, and those are the ones that you'll continue with, right? And so to find something that really speaks to you. For, so for some people, it's going to be more... Um, you know, it may be a more mindfulness, uh, body scanning and light focus, concentrative meditation that helps them feel more peaceful. And for others, it's going to be resting in and as awareness, kind of noticing that whatever we're experiencing, our thoughts, our feelings, our sensations, what's common to them is awareness. Um, and that to actually give our attention to awareness, to let ourselves fall back into and be held by that and know ourselves has that. For some, it's uh, going to be uh, more working with psychological work in our conditioning, looking, um, becoming more familiar with our bodies and our breath and looking at our core limiting beliefs. I mean, core limiting beliefs is a nice way in, mm -hmm. which is why, mm -hmm. you know, we've been accenting it in today's... It's juicy territory. Uh, yeah, it's very juicy. And, you know, I, I would say just, um, you know, work with that. You know, if you want to start somewhere, uh, I find in my work with people, regardless of their contemplative practices and traditions, uh, we always circle around to these core limiting beliefs. And to be able to apply this meditative awareness or contemplative awareness to our deep psychological conditioning, to welcome it and to provide an optimal environment for it to unfold, um, it has been powerful for everyone. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm, you kind of bring me into that place talking to you. Um, I feel very connected to that more open, I guess, spacious, maybe heart-based perspective. Um, and this has been the rhythm of my life as a practitioner, is I'll do a technique or go to a retreat or do something, and I get very feel very solidly in that. Um, and then I go back to my my life, <laughs> the outside of that, you know, my, the, my busy schedule, my parenting. And, and of course I get, I kind of forget, or I think, was that, was that real? Yeah. That's inevitable. I mean, two points on that. One is it's interesting that as we talk about this, we kind of drop in together, mm -hmm. isn't it? Like what's going, it is interesting. What's going on there, you know? And I, I think what it is, it's, it's just a very simple phenomenon of resonance. There's something in us that recognizes authenticity and resonates with it. Mm. Uh, we're always resonating. We're always transmitting. 
and resonating. And this is a particular kind of this conversation is on, you know, about a deep level of being and of awareness. And so there's a natural resonance and we fall into it together. And that's really a value of, you know, being on retreat or listening or reading to teachings. But the point is not to be dependent on that, but to bring it into our ordinary life, to your point, Jeff, you know, is mm-hmm. how to do that. And and it is, it's an inevitable process that we remember and forget. Um, it's not a mistake. I, I went through years, decades of remembering and forgetting and remembering and <laughs> re-forgetting and re-remembering. And, um, you know, just gradually there was a shift in the system. Um, you know, various pieces of conditioning as I saw through them fell away. I unlearned more and more of who I thought and felt myself to be. And there was a gradual shift, almost like a gravitational shift of identity away from the conditioned kind of sense of being to an unconditioned sense of being. And I needed to go through that experience. I needed to test out, you know, what was true and what was not. I needed to explore the dead ends. I needed to try my keep working on keep um practicing my maladaptive <laughs> way of being to discover what happened it's like how's it working for you you know yeah. it kind of feels like you need to you need to do that forgetting and then seeing it again from like a slightly different practice or yeah a different angle so that you can see it from you know all the different sides you see it from all the different sides that's right and this is how we learn and this is how we unlearn you know, there's so much of this is about unlearning because the learning takes care of itself. I, I find it so important just to, you know, if we can really, if we love the truth and we're dedicated to that, if we're willing to see what's true and what's not, if we're willing to to follow this, uh, an unfolding will happen and, and that unfolding will be quite natural. Hmm. <sighs> well, <laughs> I'm grateful that you came on to share it with us and I guess I would just ask, is there anything else that feels, asking that heart wisdom of yours, that feels like that might be a good thing to say or something that is coming up for you as a way to kind of finish off this this exploration and conversation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, when you ask me that question and I get quiet, um, what comes up is a feeling of gratitude. Hmm. And I can, I'm, I'm feeling it right now. I feel grateful. Um, I mean, specifically for to be here, to have this conversation, to feel a sense of resonance and attunement and to explore together. Uh, it's touching to me to do so. So I have a specific gratitude, but I have a more generalized gratitude too. I mean, I just feel so grateful to be alive and conscious, to be here and to be awake in this um miracle uh, of being of being human regardless of how difficult it is and you know we're in difficult times right now no question about it regardless of that regardless of the smoke from the fires in northern california regardless of the cancer that diagnosis that i have i feel i feel so profoundly grateful i love that you said that I find myself feeling that way so often and not feeling like I can say that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it, there's almost this like pressure to not say how awesome it is to just, just be alive. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like uh, telling someone that I'm like hanging out with them. I'm like this, all of this is just really amazing. But 
I will be, they'll laugh me out of here if I say that out loud. Well, know? there's that fear, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm really, really happy that you said that and the feeling's very mutual. Oh. I, it's such a perfect way to end it. I'm conscious though that our listeners, that little bit of bomb that just dropped there when you mentioned the cancer diagnosis and just maybe give a little context around that. Mm-hmm. Everyone will be furiously worried, Googling you and emailing you, oh. hoping everything's okay. Yeah. Well, everything's okay. Um, just briefly, you know, as we spoke of before the program began, uh, I, I'm 70 years, now 70. I was 69 and, and um, in excellent health. And in uh, mid-June, uh, I received the unexpected diagnosis of early uh, metastatic prostate cancer. So it spread a uh, very aggressive form of cancer, and it spread beyond the prostate to a few local sites. And so I've been treated quite well um, by local doctors and um, hormone therapy and radiation. And um, I've been told by experts in the field that um, I have a good chance to be around for a long time. Uh, I'm not feeling any pain. I feel quite well, in fact. So, um, and it's, you know, you hear this, but I feel gifted by this diagnosis, because even though uh, I, I knew this before, uh, it really sharpens the focus mm-hmm. uh, to every ordinary moment and just how precious it is. It's so inspiring to hear that as well. You know, I think it's so easy to tighten around a diagnosis and have it completely throw whatever practice you had or whatever insight you had, but it just, I don't know, it inspires because it shows the proof of what practice can really do and what that inquiry can really do. It's true. And and it's interesting. I haven't felt any fear about this. So, um, you know, we're all going to, we know about impermanence, don't we? Mm-hmm. And these bodies will go. And uh, and yet, you know, in a very unaffected and natural way, I, I feel um, quite peaceful about it. That's beautiful. John, it's been so good talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's really been a pleasure. Wow, that was uh, really beautiful. I knew it was going to be beautiful. You wish you could have like a little John in your room. Yeah, right. Just like, you know, <laughs> open up the cover. There he is. He's like, hey, guys. <laughs> Come on out. Give him some water. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> little, little John is... Uh, little John. Uh, little John, little Janine, whatever. <laughs> She's it. in the core of our being, each of us. Wonderful. Thanks for tuning in to the Consciousness Explorers podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this episode, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. See you next week for a whole new adventure.